You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. So good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Morris. I'm one of the elders of the church here, and uh, I, uh, one of my roles is that I'm frequently ejected to travel on your behalf to go and visit various initiatives that we are involved with missionally. And uh, a couple of weekends ago, I was in Frankfurt. I know quite a few, a few of you have been out to visit our church plant in Frankfurt. And uh, so they send their greetings. And uh, it's all going very, very well out there. Uh, feel free to visit again at any occasion. Um, so over the last year or so, they've just about doubled in strength. And uh, they're full of uh, encouragement as they continue to establish. We, we want to see a church like this in the centre of Frankfurt, along with all the other great things that are already happening out there. But... Uh, it was an encouraging time with the people there. Uh, last weekend, I was in uh, Gouda, or to cheese lovers among us here, Gouda, in, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, as we were planting out a new church from uh, the neighboring town um, uh, called Reivijk. And uh, this uh, church, quite a small church, very bravely sending out nearly half of their number to go and plant a new church in the neighboring town. So it was really exciting to be there. I mean, our, our passion is to see the values that God has uh, built among us here of word and spirit and grace and family and all of these things uh, inculcated and worked out in uh, many, many other nations, all the nations of the world. It's, these are New Testament values, not New Frontiers values. And we want to see them carried in the heart uh, by men and women preaching this gospel to their own culture and in their own language. So it's always thrilling when we're planting out churches uh, so this is a Dutch-speaking church being sent out into Gouda. And then earlier in this week, I was in uh, Hamburg, or just outside, about 45 minutes outside Hamburg, in a town called Wilster, very small market town of five or 6,000 people. Again, very brave, led by uh, um, some very, very young people, who again have also sent out a church plant to a neighbouring town called Brunsbüttel. So uh, I was out there to encourage and strengthen them. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful and exciting because um, you know we're not so bothered about is it a spectacular mission? You know, is it a big city or a small town? We celebrate obedience wherever we see it, and so we celebrate obedience taking a mission to Frankfurt, and we celebrate obedience taking a mission to an obscure small town called Wilster in the Wilster Marsh, in uh, uh, the very top of Germany. And uh, you know, in similarly, we've uh, this morning sent Tom out to Stone Market to go and stand with Dave and June out there. Please remember to pray for them as we look to see the work of God established in that market town as well. Um, a small life group plug, uh, Heart for the Nations. If you want to pray for some of these situations, come and join us. We do a live Skype call each time we meet about once a fortnight into one of these church plants around Europe and beyond. And uh, don't let this sway your decision, but we're doing a missions trip together to Malaga uh, later in the year. Um, but it will be the first week of December, which might put you off a little bit. Anyway, it's exciting days. I'm uh, honestly, genuinely, sincerely, I'm as excited about being part of a local church as I've ever been, really, in terms of being involved with what God is doing here in Ipswich, locally, with our mission, the opportunities with the Hope Centre, uh, the reach that we have starting to impact other regions and other nations. It's, it's, it's a thrilling thing to be part of. Um, 
Tom has done a great job introducing us to our series in 1 Corinthians. You can catch up with all the background listening to his two previous messages on our website where he explains the context for these messages but unpacks uh, the gospel in terms of unstoppable advance and mighty truth. So have a listen if you haven't done so. But today we're going to continue working our way through the rest of chapter 1 and to the end of chapter 2, which is obviously a huge tract of uh, scripture to read. And um, so we'll be needing to take quite big strides through that. Before we get into this, I just want to make an observation. These are astonishing writings. The Bible contains uh, some of the most beautiful texts ever written. Okay, As humankind, we may have accumulated knowledge in terms of technology and medical science and travel and many other things when compared to these guys who wrote the scripts that we find in the Bible. And looking back 2,000 years at these people, their society can sometimes appear a bit primitive. Some of their practices can even appear barbaric. But in terms of the human condition and interaction with all things spiritual, these men and women understand as much as anybody in the history of human thought. And I don't think we've gone forward. In fact, in some ways, I think we've gone backward. And uh, it's beautiful to unpack these things together. The wisdom of the Bible is richly and entirely as relevant to us and to our world as it has ever been. So in the verses we're going to look at today, Paul takes us on a journey that looks at how the wisdom of the world is utterly foolish compared to the wisdom of God. How the wisdom of God in the cross is seen as utterly foolish by the world. And how, well, the wisdom of God is unspeakably higher than our own wisdom, yet we can daily live with the wisdom of God as if it were our own. So those are the three things I'm going to unpack. So let's get cracking. So let's read. If you've got your Bibles there, I'm going to pick up uh, chapter 1 in verse 18. And it says this, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Hallelujah. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We're going to pause there. So there's rich encouragement for anybody this morning who is feeling weak and despised and low and not very wise. Okay, there's rich encouragement for us in here, but let's just look at this point that Paul is trying to emphasize, that really, if we were to take all the best wisdom and knowledge and thoughts of humankind through all ages and heap it all up in a pile, it is still less than God's most idle thoughts. It's an amazing thing. It's just an amazing thing to allow that to settle with us. Because I I don't think I need to make the argument that perhaps in the world today, mankind has found himself a little bit proud uh, (laughs) of what he thinks he's achieved and who he is. And yet, we can summon every thought we have ever possibly had, every accumulation of wisdom and knowledge, and God in his most idle moment, his wisdom is already higher than ours. Even when God is being foolish, the Bible says, which is an extraordinary thing to say about God in verse 25, even when God is being foolish, he is wiser than all of us put together. Okay. It's good to understand where we stand in the pecking order of wisdom. But it's really important. I mean, if, if there's a subtext to my message today, it's about what it means to humble ourselves. And what it means to humble ourselves before what is really true. Yeah? And not think too much of ourselves and lean too much on what we think we know, the Bible says. Yeah? Do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, commit your ways to him. He will make your path straight. The world is very proud of what we think we know. You know, God is out of touch. God is out of date. It's so wearisome. Even, I mean, okay, maybe Welby was a little unwise to foray into uh, muddled politics, but the reaction was really disparaging. And, uh, you know, the media reaction, church, shut up, you know, go back to your cups of tea. And, you know, and you're just thinking, you're so proud of what you think you know. <laughs> and you haven't got the first idea. You've not got the first idea. Everything that we think we have learnt has anyway been revealed to us. Yeah? We haven't figured out anything outside of God. So every one of these beautiful advances we've made as a civilization, medically, techno- technologically and otherwise, is because we've discovered something that God had already laid there. There's a great quote. I don't know if you've seen this film, uh, The Man Who Knew Infinity. It's about an Indian mathematician a hundred years ago or so. Ramanujan was his name. And uh, he uh, somehow, um, uh, Cambridge University got to hear about his, uh, his work as a mathematician. And they invited him over, a guy called Hardy invited him over to study at Cambridge. And sadly and tragically, um, Ramanujan uh, died quite early. And Hardy, uh, Ramanujan was a devout Hindu, Hardy was a devout atheist. And Hardy was speaking a eulogy. Um, and uh, he says... Uh, He told me that an equation for him had no meaning unless it expressed a thought of God. Well, despite everything in my being set to the contrary, 
Perhaps he is right. This is an atheist speaking. We do not invent these formulae. They already exist and lie in wait for only the very brightest of minds like Ramanujan ever to, to define and prove. So in the end, I've been forced to consider who are we to question Ramanujan, let alone God. <laughs> it's an amazing quote from one of Britain's most eminent mathematicians to say, we don't invent these things. We're just, we're, they're waiting for us to discover them. So we can get a bit proud in our intellect, but we need to understand from where our intellect is derived. People can easily get intellectually offended by God. Okay, And I would be prepared to wager that most of us in this room at some time have been intellectually offended by God. You know, how, can, how can God allow that to happen? That's not fair. Oh, when I get to heaven, I've got a few questions to ask God. You ever done that? Yeah? We can find ourselves intellectually offended. True wisdom comes from God. Okay? If anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. James tells us. Where do we find wisdom? Well, first and foremost, in the Bible. The wisdom of God for every generation is firstly revealed to us in his word, and it's illuminated or explained to us or made plain to us by his spirit. Jesus is our living word, and he has left an all-sufficient deposit of his wisdom to us in the Bible so that with the help of the spirit of our guide, as our guide, we can know the wisdom of God. Okay? For the Christian, this is how it works. And sometimes yet we can still find ourselves intellectually offended by God. Things look out of touch or unfair to the wisdom of our day. But this is the revealed word of God. We approach the word of God with humility. We don't own the truth. We shouldn't put ourselves above the Bible. If we are intellectually offended, what we need to remind ourselves is that God's judgments are perfect. And you may be living with some intellectual offense today. You may be, why, you know, why is that in the Bible? Why does Jesus do that? Why did God allow this? Why did my family member have to suffer in this way? Why has this happened? Yeah? I'm, I'm offended, God. I'm offended by that. And we have this sort of sense sometimes that we're going to march into heaven and say, just hold on there, God. You know, this isn't fair. I'm going to hold you to trial. Friends, that's not going to happen. <laughs> We're not going to hold God to trial. We're not going to get to heaven. Myriad upon myriad of angels and, and they're all worshipping on the throne. And then one little voice going, hold on one minute. I've got a question. It's not going to happen. Yeah? Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. We humble ourselves and surrender to the wisdom of God, even if our intellect is offended. Because one day you will face him on that day. We will get judged one day. The living and the dead are judged. The righteous and the unrighteous are judged. And 
you will have in the back of your mind something that you've carried with you that you thought is really quite unfair or unjust or your intellectual offence that's been resting in the back of your mind. And God is going to reveal to you his perfect justice. And you are going to be laid low with astonishment and joy and relief and say, ascribe greatness to our God. His justice is perfect. It's perfect. You're going to celebrate the justice of God one day. You're not going to be holding God to trial and saying, hang on, I think I know a bit better than you on this one, God. That's not going to happen. Okay. So we approach the wisdom of God with humility. We are so eager among ourselves here at Hope Church to be as faithful as we possibly can be to the truth of the Bible. We're not looking for any new interpretations or new revelations. We, are, we talk about being a restoration church. We want to restore the things that always have been, that maybe over centuries may have been lost, but we're not looking to create anything new. You know, we've spoken before about one Bible, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, five centuries. We trace everything back to the creeds of Nicaea, to the Apostles' Creed, to Chalcedon, the councils at Constantinople and Ephesus. And uh, these things inform us and shape our doctrine. So be wary of new interpretations of the Bible. Just be wary of that. Be careful when people say, well, you know, I'm going to reject this element. Or I'm going to be a bit selective. I'll, I'll pick that, but I'll ignore this. Be careful about that. I heard a phrase, I was listening to something recently, I heard a phrase, someone said, oh, now, in this particular aspect of the Bible, the interpreters don't really help us. And that makes me nervous when I hear someone say that. It makes me nervous when someone feels that maybe God hasn't been capable of defending his own word. You know, I think God is capable of defending his own word over 2,000 years. You know? And so for us to stand up, and I've heard some people say this, quite weighty people saying the way we've been reading the Bible is wrong for 2,000 years. I've heard people say that. I'm just saying be careful because essentially, essentially you're disparaging 2,000 years of scholarship from very capable and wise and scholarly men and women. And you are suggesting that God has not been able to defend the integrity of his word for 2,000 years. I personally don't hold that to be the case. So just be careful when someone says, you know, well, here's a way of reading the Bible that maybe you've never heard before. No, I'm looking to find about how to read the Bible in the way that it's always been read, right back to our Orthodox roots in the three creeds, the four councils, the first five centuries. Not some new way of reading the Bible that no one's ever said before. As soon as I hear that, out. Don't want to hear that. Okay, so let's humble ourselves. Paul is laboring here that we do not access God through wisdom. We do not meet God by a meeting of minds, by thinking this through somehow. It's impossible to access God through our wisdom because actually the only way to access God is through something utterly foolish, which is the cross of Christ, which is his next point. And we'll move on to that now. Are you ready? So proclaiming Christ crucified. I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This is the beginning of chapter 2. With lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The foolishness of preaching the cross. The foolishness of going to the world and saying, no, you're not going to outthink God. You've got to come to a man who is God, broken on a tree. Because our sin has broken the world. And the only way for us to be delivered from the consequences of our rebellion is that the perfect, sinless Lamb of God was nailed to a tree. That's foolishness to this world. It's a folly. What are we talking about? I've come to understand, really, that I can read where a person is in their walk with God by how they've done business with the cross. Now, I think the Catholics overbalance a bit by all the time having these effigies of Jesus hanging in agony on the cross in all his suffering. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment because I think it's important for us to reflect on that. But the reason that I'm, I think they overbalance on it a bit is because we're a resurrection people. We've been raised with him. We live in the new life of resurrection power. But I am convinced that in order to fully engage and understand the riches of a resurrection life, you must look at it through the lens of the suffering of Christ on the cross. If the sufferings of Christ and your participation in those sufferings do not move you, then I don't think you will fully access the riches of a resurrection life. So it's important for us to know what it means to be broken at the foot of the cross. It's important for you personally to recognise... You know, I remember someone saying once, uh, this is not my uh, clever quote, it's someone else's clever quote, how they say, some people will say, oh, Jesus, if I was the only person on the earth, you would have died for me, as if that's something to be pleased about. You know? It's not actually the reverse, that my sin was sufficient to send the King of Glory to the cross. That's not something to boast about. That's something to be broken about. And I want to urge you to meditate on what it means to be truly broken at the cross. Because to access the riches of a resurrection life, we have to go through the sufferings of Christ. That at the foot of the cross, I lay all my sin, all my rebellion. At the foot of the cross, I lay all my shame. I lay all my guilt. I lay the penalty for my own sin, which was death and separation from God for eternity. I lay my suffering at his feet. Because everything I am and everything I have personally and everything we enjoy collectively emanates from the cross. It comes from the cross. If it were not for the cross, none of this would be in our reach. And it, what I've discovered is that if people do not do business with the cross, if they are not awash with wonder, if they're not moved at the thought of what Christ obtained for us, 
you know, not just rejoicing in the wonderful benefits and consequences, but able to reflect on what it took to get us there, that it can, it can give rise to a confliction in our spirits. And the confliction is this. The confliction is this, that we have not crucified our old self and understood what that means. And some people get offended by this. I have been rebuked for preaching this, okay? So if, if you're offended by this and you want to rebuke me afterwards, you're in good company. Other people have done this, okay? Paul says, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross every day. Yeah? So sometimes the gospel we project is, you know, Christ was our substitutionary sacrifice and at the cross he took all my suffering and shame and, uh, and now I can live in resurrection power. But Jesus actually says, no, you've got to pick up your cross every day. And the reason you've got to pick up your cross every day is because the work's not finished. Your spirit has been eternally redeemed, but you're still carrying around this body and you're still carrying around a whole host of appetites that want to feed your old nature. And every day we have to put it to death and say, no. And every day in Romans 12, it says we have to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Normally, sacrifices are dead. <laughs> you make the sacrifice, it's dead. No, we're living sacrifices. We climb up on the altar and we say, well, we're yours today, Jesus. And then through the cares and woes of the day, we climb off and we wander off and we do our own things. And the next day, we present ourselves afresh as a living sacrifice. We pick up our cross. We put to death the deeds of our old nature. We say, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to surrender and humble myself and submit to the cross of Christ in my life every day. It's just a sense of competition if we don't learn what this means and how to do this. We've got to crucify pride and self-interest and self-importance. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to crucify yourself every day? The most beautiful day is the day we see the cross. And we see what Jesus suffered for us to enjoy his resurrection power. He fights for breath. He fights for me. It's foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the very power of God. Hallelujah. So finally, wisdom from the Spirit. Let's go through this. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no no one comp comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. I haven't got time to finish this passage. This is my point. You can never know what I'm really thinking. I can never know what you are really thinking. All right? So you might invite me around for dinner. And you might say, Morris, did you enjoy that? And I'm thinking, that's the worst meal I've ever had. But because I'm English, I'll say, oh, that was lovely, thank you. And you'll never know my thoughts. Unless I tweet it afterwards. Whoa, that was shocking. You know? 
You can't know the thoughts of another person. You can't even know fully the thoughts of your own wife or husband or parents or kids. But you can fully know the thoughts of God. Is that not amazing? Let that settle for a moment. You can't even know the thoughts of the person sat next to you. But what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard, how can we possibly know this? Oh, it's been revealed to us by the Spirit. And we could fully know the thoughts of God. You could fully know what he thinks. He's not holding anything back from you because his spirit dwells within you. Is that not a beautiful thing to ponder? Yeah? What do you think about yourself today? I'm a bit of a disappointment. I'm a disappointment to myself and others. I'm a bit of a failure. Wish I was a better parent. Wish I hadn't shouted at my wife as we got in the car today. You know? But do you want to know, do you want to know what God thinks? Do you want to know what God thinks about you? Because you can fully know what God thinks about you by his spirit. And he says, that's my child. Yeah, bit of a mess. But we're cleaning him up. We'll sort her out. Because I love my child. Very precious to me. You're very precious to me. Don't listen to the rubbish that's chattering away in your thought life. Listen to me, says the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. Listen to me. Let your whole identity be shaped by what I think about you. And you have access to the fullness of the thoughts and knowledge of God for you. Hallelujah. So let's bring this into a close. I want to encourage you, humble yourself before the wisdom of God. If you're intellectually offended, if you're hurt, if you're living with injustice, humble yourself now, because you'll have to do it one day. (laughs) Okay? If you want to wait until that day when you see him face to face to then have it out with him, well then God bless you in that. I would say sort it out now. Humble yourself now before the wisdom of God. God, your ways are higher than mine. Yeah. I, you know, I don't understand it, God. I've got questions, but I, I humble myself. I surrender to your wisdom. And I surrender to your truth. Humble yourself before the cross. Ask God to reveal to you what this means. If what I was saying didn't really grip you or move you, then you need to meditate on this. Because as people of the way, this should move us and grip us. And to access the benefits of a resurrection life, we have to see it through the lens of the suffering of Christ and understand what that means for us every day, to crucify our old nature and not be a conflicted person competing with our new nature, but putting to death that which is of our old self. And humble yourself before the Spirit. Stop arguing with God. Let him tell you what he thinks. Yeah? Yeah? Don't keep telling him what you think. Oh, you know, how could you love me, God? I'm rubbish. You know, no. You can know the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Paul finishes in this section. In this section, he says, "We we have the mind of Christ. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. People of the world won't get this because they haven't got the spirit. You've got the spirit. You've got the mind of Christ. You can know what He thinks. To humble yourself before what He thinks." Surrender what you think. 
Say, God, I want to be shaped by what you think about me and what is true about who I am. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands up. We just say, Lord Jesus, we come to you as, as uh, your friends. Uh, we come to you very humbly because we recognize who you are. Jesus, this the friendship and the fear of knowing that we're approaching the one who has gone before us and made a way for us by taking down our enemy at the cross. And we, we say we, we don't want to be pompous about what we think we know. We don't want to be proud about what we think we know. We just wanna, we, if, we, if we are living with confliction and uh, um, injustice and offence, indignation about anything you've said or done, Jesus, we just want to surrender to you and say, oh, your ways are higher than my ways. And I want to put that down at your feet and say, forgive me if I've tried to tell you what you should be thinking and saying, Jesus. And I ascribe greatness to you and acknowledge that I am never going to find a day when I will feel that you have been lacking in justice and lacking in wisdom. Quite the opposite. I'm going to revel for all eternity. And what a just God I serve. All his ways are perfect. I'm going to dwell in all eternity looking back and thinking that is just perfect justice. And oh, Jesus, I want to do business with the cross. I want to come to you and say, I want to learn what it means to identify with your sufferings. Man of sorrows, what a name. I want to understand what that means so that I can fully enter into the resurrection power that you have obtained for me and live fully in the liberty of grace because I have understood the cost and I've understood my personal responsibility and I've said I am broken at your feet, Jesus. I'm broken at your feet. And every day my old nature still rises up and yet I will crucify my old nature and say, no, I live for Jesus now. I'm not going to tolerate that behavior. I'm not going to tolerate that attitude. I'm going to crucify it. I'm going to carry my cross. I'm going to present myself every day as a living sacrifice and say, today, thank you, Jesus. Your mercies are fresh every day. And I can today start again with you and say, no, I'm going to learn and grow what it means to live in a Christ-like way. And Jesus, we surrender to your beautiful words over us, that we are your beloved, uh, redeemed inheritance that you've chosen us before the foundation of the world to share inheritance with you that God you would say that we are without blemish and free from accusation in Jesus that we are the children of God we have the right to be called the children of God co-heirs with your blemishless son the one who never sinned and we are heirs together with him heirs of the promises Lord Jesus, we want to be shaped by what is true, not shaped by our chattering insecurities, not shaped by the words of others that have been spoken over us that may bind us. We break those in the power of Jesus and say we live in your resurrection truth and in your resurrection power today and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.